No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome aboard, everybody. Thank you for joining in on Talking Bass in PDX, the bass in warm water form as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark, and I'll be your host. Today, I have a co-host, Rich Tomlinson. Rich has been a mentor to myself and many others as he helps us improve our bass fishing. Welcome aboard, Rich. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate having me on. Well, due to the executive order that took effect back on March 24th, we've had limited access to fishing, and we basically have sheltered inside. But I thought we'd take a little more in-depth look at bass fishing today, and that's why I've got Rich on as a co-host so that we can really dig down into the um, depths of fishing, as it were, before we get started. And for reference, this recording is being done the first week of May. But we do have some limited fishing reports. Rich, what have you got for us? Well, you know, um, earlier um, this week, I had a chance to go out to uh, Hague Lake with a fellow fisherman who is also, like myself, a member of the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. And um, he was able to uh, pick up a very nice 18 and three-quarter inch smallmouth bass off of one of the main lake points. Uh, when we got there, we were very surprised to find that the water temperature was 50, between 58 and 60 degrees. And that uh, kind of caused us to change up our presentation of what we were originally going to throw because we thought we were going to be dealing with colder water. And we ended up uh, fishing main lake points. He got this very nice uh, smallmouth bass. But, you know, Hague Lake can be a finicky lake and a tough lake to fish because it's a cold, clear water, deep lake. And um, that was the only fish we had to speak of for the day. But, by golly, it was a good fish. <laughs> um, the water is warming uh, rather rapidly this year, or seemingly is ahead of the curve uh, at this time of the year, uh, as compared to the average. Consequently, I think the bass are probably moving up into the shallow water sooner already, in fact. And um, we didn't concentrate quite so much on the shallow water as maybe we should have. Meanwhile, I've been hearing some reports from other Oregon Bass and Panfish Club members who have been down on the Willamette River below the falls and have uh, indicated that they're doing quite well with both smallmouth and largemouth bass. In fact, one of the members had posted a picture on Facebook of a real beauty. He caught a largemouth bass um, on the lower Willamette River, down in the industrial area, the Superfund area, and um, it was in excess of uh, 18, 19 inches. It was a beauty. Meanwhile, um, other guys are reporting that uh, they're getting good numbers of smallmouth bass. One friend was out for about four hours and he got um, 32 smallmouth bass in that course of that time period. So he's doing well as well. Wow, that's some great reports. Now, uh, as for myself, I was able to get on the uh, Willamette River downtown uh, last weekend. Uh, I also had my co-fisherman, otherwise known as my daughter, on board with me. And uh, we did get into some small uh, bass, uh, mostly uh, under 12 inches, and they were in fairly shallow water. Water temperature was between 57 and 59 degrees. Now we did get into a school of yellow perch and we parked the boat next to some logs 
And for the next hour, uh, my daughter brought in uh, over 20 yellow perch, uh, many females that were uh, that looked like they're probably we probably got into an area where they were spawning. So we only stayed for a bit. Uh, by the way, all of the fish that we caught were returned back to the water because, uh, as I told the uh, ODFW person who was at the, the dock, I said our fish are too valuable to catch just once and got a good chuckle out of her. But there were many, many um, boats there in the water, uh, both bass boats and cold water fishing boats. So it was very busy. So I think people are getting a little bit... Uh, of cabin fever uh, is the best that I can say. So with that, Rich, let's kick off this um, this talk. And this is just kind of uh, you and me sitting on the boat like we've done in in the past. And the first thing that I had uh, been thinking about, because I had to do some work on the storage uh, of my boat the other day, uh, storing my tackle. I had, I had some things in just plastic bins, and I decided to put them away uh, in better storage. But how do you prefer to store your tackle in your boat, especially new bags of tackle that you buy, that type of thing? Well, um, you know, early on, when I first got my boat and first started putting together an arsenal of tackle, I began with um, the old plain old uh, utility boxes. You know, they were compartmentalized, and it was easy for you to find where your baits were because you could label your boxes with a... Uh, with a uh, Sharpie, and, and you knew what was in what box. You grabbed the box you needed, you grabbed the lure you needed, and uh, away you went. Um, however, I found that that wasn't working well over the years because of rust, because of oxidation, because of condensation. Um, I was having a tough time with keeping the hooks on my crankbaits in, in uh, good, sharp shape. I was having to replace them all the time. And so I consequently decided that I would start uh, leaving the uh, baits that I buy at the uh, various tackle shops in the bags that they come in and put them in soft tackle bags, bags that I acquired from uh, either uh, off the Internet or at Cabela's or wherever. Um, However, I found that when I did it this way, instead of putting everything in the utility boxes, of course, now I've lost the labeling ability. And the uh, bags that I had purchased, certainly they have different pockets, zippered pockets, and so I could uh, try to sort my baits out by putting them in various types of pockets. I had cranks and jerk baits and swim baits and grubs and tubes and worms and craws and jigs with trailers and uh, creature baits uh, and terminal tackle hooks and weights and, uh, uh, and scissors and pliers, etc. All that I needed to separate out in one compartment or another in these bags so that I could access them when I needed to. And remembering where they were and what pockets they were in wasn't terribly difficult, but it wasn't the same as the labeling system I was using on the old Plano um, utility boxes. Well, that worked okay. That worked okay, especially because of the versatility of taking a soft tackle bag with you when somebody else invites you in their boat. You take one bag, you have a versatile number of baits in that bag, and you're not filling your friend's boat with a, with a ton of stuff. You, uh, you got a bag and you just uh, grab what you can use from it. And I think uh, 
a lot of uh, boat owners appreciate that when you're invited to go with them. You don't take a ton of stuff to fill their boat with. However, recently I have been flipping back to the utility boxes, and the reason I have is because nowadays they're coming out with watertight boxes. They're using a watertight O-ring seal in the lid, which is keeping moisture out um, at least 95% better than ever before. And some um, brands of utility boxes, uh, for instance, Flambeau has uh, Z-Rust uh, dividers. It's a, it's a polymer, Z-Rust polymer, that prevents oxidation. And so it keeps each individual compartment as dry as possible um, from condensation. So I, I, uh, I've been going back to that. I like to be able to label the boxes and know which box I'm going to in order to get a specific type of bait, as opposed to searching through numerous pockets on various soft tackle bags trying to find what I needed when I needed it. Uh, that's interesting because I also had stumbled on to those waterproof boxes. Now, in the past, I've experienced the exact same problem you have with my hooks rusting or the uh, the rings that hold them on rusting and very frustrating because you've got to sit and change out the hook and clean the, the uh, especially in a crankbait situation, you clean it up so that it looks nice. And uh, so that's exactly what I've done. I've gone and bought several of those uh, boxes that uh, I can mark, and that's where I'm putting my baits. So that, uh, you know, because tackle's expensive, uh, let's face it. it, it uh, you know, you go and buy a, a few bags of things, and all of a sudden you've spent $30, you know? So now, as we kind of move forward a little bit, we're, we're kind of getting ready to go. I'd like you to go back to the Hag Lake uh, experience that you guys just had this past week and kind of tell me how did you get rigged up for that? How many rods and reels did you have ready and what type of uh, tackle were you going to use? Well, I, I myself was invited to go in my friend's boat. So I brought four rods and I brought uh, a couple soft tackle ba uh, packages with me. Carries a variety of different uh, baits. And I had uh, tied up ahead of time and I had uh, put on a, um, a drop shot in uh, anticipation of doing some deeper water and uh, fishing some deeper water. And I had put on a jig with a trailer, uh, a craw-type trailer. I had a swim bait on, and I had a lipless crankbait on. When we got there and found what the water temperature was, gosh, I, I felt that uh, I might want to go to something more like uh, creature baits because... Um, Predominantly, the fish, in, in, in my opinion, like to feed on crawdads or bottom-dwelling uh, forage um, as the water temperatures are warming up. Sometimes they're keying on uh, bait fish. Sometimes they're keying on the crawdads. So, and it's tougher to tell in uh, at Hague Lake than it is on the river. But um, so we went to some areas that we thought would be um, where the fish would be at. We um, uh, Dimly, when the water's colder, we would normally go to an area, zigzag it, and look at our electronics and see if we can find schools of them. You find them, then you throw at them. But um, this time we just went to uh, those areas that uh, seemingly the fish would, um, would be on, like secondary points as they're traveling their way up out of their deep holes uh, towards their on their migration routes towards spawning flats. 
They weren't there, but we, we found uh, uh, nothing showing on our electronics. We gave a good, try, hard, honest try in several areas that we thought were ideal areas for fish to be migrating to at this point in time, and with the water temperature being the way it is. But it um, wasn't happening. So we changed up a little bit, went to deeper uh, main lake points, and that's where we ended up catching the fish that we caught. Now, I had a couple of bites, but I didn't get either one of them. Joe did get one, and he got, uh, he got it on a net rig. He was using a uh, mushroom head, finesse uh, TRD worm, in a uh, craw collar. I think you told me it was a California craw collar, and a uh, very nice smallmouth. But like I said, uh, several hours of uh, fishing and uh, only one fish to show for it. Yeah, that, that can be the thing with uh, Hag Lake, as everybody may know that lives up here in the northwest. That can be a finicky lake out there. Depending upon the temperature, sometimes the fish are ready to bite, and sometimes they're uh, uh, a little more skittish. So, and and do you feel that the line or line color that you're using can also cause a bite uh, out at Hag Lake, particularly if you're using a, a a line that's more of a clear color? Well, uh, look at uh, the line. Uh, the lines that are available on the market today, uh, you know, there's one for nearly every situation you, you can uh, encounter. We have the option of using mono, floral, and braid, and we just have to decide which is best for our style of fishing. Um, at Hague Lake, um, I do like to use floral weeder on my bait, uh, lines, a red 10 to 12 foot weeder on my lines uh, because I like the uh, transparency of the, of the uh, floral and I like the fact that it has a little bit less stretch in it and I like the fact that it sinks and I do a lot of subsurface fishing when I'm at Hague Lake and it is a deep clear lake. Um, it's currently almost at full pool right now and uh, maybe one or two feet low um, and it is clear. Visibility is six, easy, easily six, seven feet, and possibly more. And so, yeah, the, uh, uh, early in the season, especially the smallmouth, they have a tendency to be easily spooked. So you kind of want to um, be as finesse as you can with them. So I like to use floral. Uh, I use braid uh, a spool, uh, for the most part, uh, filling my spool on my reel, and then use a 10 to 12 foot uh, Floral, um, but not in every case. I think mono, for instance, is the best multi-purpose line of all of them, and uh, there's um, many uses for it as well. And I've got a uh, few spinning wheels that are full 100% mono only. The uh, Ned rig is known as a finesse rig, and I think that's why uh, Joe was able to get that nice smallmouth that he got. On the uh, largemouth bass that we were searching for, earlier in the day, I guess maybe we weren't doing as well as we might because, you know, there's only a limited amount of time during each given day that the bass are biting, especially when it's colder water or early in the season. Um, water was more than we expected. Um, but I think also a vertical presentation is probably better than a horizontal presentation at this point in time. And we were, we were wind drifting, wind was blowing pretty good, and we had more of a horizontal presentation than we did a, a vertical. And so I think that contributed to us not doing as well as we might have. 
But uh, as far as um, line color and transparency, I think we were using the right stuff. We like to use eight-pound test in particular when we're in open water like we were across the points. It's um, just the kind of bit, uh, line that isn't going to spook the fish. Yeah, and as long as we're talking about those points that you're talking about, now, of course, we're not going to give them away. If folks want to go out and fish Hag Lake, certainly they're welcome to go out there. Were you fishing the entire point, east-west, north-south, that type of thing, or were you only fishing one side of them? No, we were fishing across the points, uh, drifting, wind drifting across the points, um, literally from um, uh, one downward side up to the crest and back down the other side, and trying to stay, basically, in a Pacific uh, uh, depth of water, it, which, which requires that uh, you have to kind of maneuver in, in, around the point rather than straight across the point. And um, if that makes any sense, uh, you, you stay at the same depth level if you can. Um, and then if you don't find them, you go back, you go again, and you go at a different depth level. And then you go again, and you go at a different depth level. And if you're not uh, with the wind, you're coming back uh, with, on your electronic motor, doing basically the same thing. You're crisscrossing that point, seeing if you just can't find those fish that might, in fact, be coming up to have a look around for both forage and maybe reconnoitering um, spawning areas that are on the nearby flats. And uh, because fishing, it did not sound like you caught a lot of fish, but you did get one nice big one. Does that cause you to move to a different bait sooner, or do you stick with that particular bait for a little longer? Absolutely. It causes me to move to a different bait. I told you what I had tied on prior to us leaving, and I used every one of them. Picked up every rod and tried everything that I had on. I also, um, not I, but we also moved a lot. We weren't finding them, so you continually move. You go from place to place. Like I said earlier, there's only a small period of time of day that the fish are biting on, uh, on any given day. And uh, generally, as most of us know, those are low light periods early in the morning or late in the afternoon. But, but uh, they're feeding at different times uh, in different areas on the way. It's not always the same time in the same spot all, uh, all the time. So we move. We try to find the fish. Go to point A, then point B, then C, et cetera. And we're, uh, search, uh, we use a lot of search baits uh, uh, to try to find if we can't get a bite find if the fish are there, and like I said earlier, we also like to use our electronics to see if we can stop the fish, but this time we, we weren't using that particular strategy in as much that we felt that uh, the water temperature was going to have them up shallower, and uh, that might have been a misconception because we, we didn't find them, um, well, actually, we didn't find them deep or shallow from where we were, so... But, yeah, I would uh, have a tendency to switch over more often when I am not getting bit than I would if I was into them. If I get into them, I'm staying with what works. No, absolutely, I agree. I, um, I tend to fish more plastics than crankbait, and I tend to fish more Carolina rigs than other style rigs, but that's just me. That's a good, that's a good plan, though, uh, Don, because uh, uh, you're in and you're out. You're going to catch more fish on soft plastics than you are on crankbaits or hard hard plastic baits. Um, 
they just have that undulating movement to them, the uh, like uh, creature bait type uh, appearance to them that that crankbaits can't always emulate. No, I agree. And and when I was fishing on the Willamette uh, last weekend, I was uh, throwing a. Uh, uh, Gary Yamamoto Fat Craw. Um, it was uh, kind of a reddish color, and uh, when the bass would hit it, even the smallmouth or even the small, smaller fish, uh, you knew it. it. There was no doubt that they were uh, going after it to eat. They were not striking it from, uh, you know, from a "Hey, get out of my way." It was uh, this is food, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get after it. So it was interesting to. Uh, to watch the strike because it was always pretty pretty hard. Now, tell me a little bit more about you know what kind of knots and what kind of hooks that you like to use. Well, uh, when I'm fishing soft plastics, I'm I'm using uh, extra wide gap type hooks and and sprout hooks. Um, I like to expose the soft plastics. I usually um, for weight, I will use a bullet weight uh, uh, and tech both plastic and fish it Texas style. Or I will move up the line with my weight and put a, a split shot and split shot. Uh, sometimes my weight for what I'm split shotting will be 10 inches above my terminal tackle. Sometimes it will be 18 inches above, depending on what I'm wanting to do with it what kind of soft plastic I have on there, in particular whether it stays on the bottom, the soft plastic, or if it floats. Um, if I want to get up above some grass that's on the bottom, I put on a longer um, amount of line between my my weight and my tackle. Um, uh, of course, uh, extra wide gap hooks are my, my my favorite. But when I'm going to wizards and uh, and um, Brush hogs, then I'm going to use a sprout hook. It's a flatter shanked hook, and it lays along the body of the, of the, uh, the length of the body of the bait better than a, than a wide gap would. And I like to use it that way because I do a lot of Carolina fishing when I am fishing with uh, those kinds of baits. Works out real well. Keeps me from getting hung up pretty good. No, I understand. And... Um... Now, do you have a particular brand of hook that you like? And of course, we're not we're not advertising for anybody. But for those that are listening out there, they may they may want to try some of the hooks that you're using. Well, they, they, once again, there's a myriad uh, of, of brands out there, and uh, I'm sure that they all are um, reputable. I, however, like the Gamakatsu hooks. Uh, I use them um, quite a bit. Not exclusively, um, but I do like those the best, and they work the best for me. They make a good light wire hook that I like to use when I'm finesse fishing. And here in the uh, Willamette Valley area, for smallmouth predominantly, we are finesse fishing more than we are power fishing for the uh, for the uh, largemouth or for the bigger smallmouth up on the Columbia. And that's so interesting. Those hooks work out well, really well for me. They keep their sharpness, they keep their strength, and, they, and I catch a lot of fish using them. And that's a, an excellent point that they keep they keep sharp. 
Uh, I actually had some hooks, and I had, uh, and I won't mention what they are because that wouldn't be fair. But they were inexpensive. Okay, they were um, had come from a, a store that sells inexpensive tackle. I had bought them because I thought they would work well, and I actually broke a couple of them uh, off on um, something caught on the bottom. I did not actually lose the entire hook. I broke them, which I I thought was interesting. Uh, also, after I broke a couple of them, uh, I tried sharpening them just to make sure they were sharp, and uh, I could not. Uh, my test for sharpening is to scratch uh, your thumbnail or fingernail, and I could not get them sharp enough to scratch uh, into my fingernail, so I switched over to a name brand hook uh, last week, which I thought was interesting. So, Rich, we were talking about knots, and what are your favorite knots that you typically use? Well, you know, I try to like to keep it simple. My uh, two favorite knots for the majority of type of fishing I do are the improved clinch knot and the Palomar knot. If you've ever not watched the uh, knot wars on TV, um, there's a million knots out there, and there's a lot of different ones that you can use. But um, to keep it simple, uh, because I end up tying a lot of knots an awful lot, I like to use the ones that are most simple for me and have the best strength. The improved clinch knot and the Palomar work really well for me. When I am attaching my fluorocarbon leader to a braid uh, mainline, I like to use the double uni knot. And those three are probably the ones I try the most often. Sometimes when I am crappie fishing and or sunfish fishing, bluegill, etc., and I want to scale down um, from like a 10-pound or 8-pound mono to a 6- or a 4-pound mono per liter, I will use the blood knot to attach two smaller, one smaller mono to a larger mono. So those are, my, those are the knots that I like to use the most. And um, they're relatively easy to tie. Don't take too long. Well, and I would think, Rich, if uh, someone's wanting to find any of those three knots, uh, they could use their favorite search engine, or they can look them up on YouTube and see videos as to how to tie them. Boy, can you ever. And there is a ton of information out there uh, <clears throat> about how to tie all the knots that I suggested and more and more. There are a ton of knots. <clears throat> I like to keep it simple. I tie a lot of knots. I do it with those knots that uh, I tie the fastest and have um, the most integrity for me. Well, I think the key thing there is keep it simple and knots that you can tie quickly. So thank you for that. If you had to choose one bait, what would it be? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, uh, do I get to tell you I have one bait for each season of the year? <laughs> sure. Why don't you tell me, yeah, one, one bait for each season. I, I knew you were going to wiggle out of that question. <laughs> I like uh, stick bait, jerk bait type uh, lures early in the spring when it's colder water, depending on whether they're keying on uh, bait fish or crawdads. I, I like soft plastic swim baits and uh, crawd imitators in the spring. In the summer, I will go with uh, jigs, and I like to throw frogs up into the soup, what we call heavy vegetation. In the fall, I like to crankbait more often than I do in other seasons. And then I'm back to the spoons and jerkbaits uh, in the winter. 
Now I'm surprised because uh, also you didn't mention didn't mention swim baits, and I know that there's times when uh, when we've even fished together, you throw a lot of swim baits. So I was surprised you didn't pick swim baits. Um, yeah, I I do. I like swim baits. Uh, like like I said earlier, I I did say that depending on whether they're keying on bait fish or crawdads, I'll fish swim baits for for the bait fish and um, craw imitators for the uh, for the crawdad bite. And that uh, that was interesting because uh, you know most most folks that I've asked that question to they come up with one bait but but that was nice to go around go around through all the seasons. Now you and I were talking earlier and you said that uh, you you're looking through your notes and and have you got some other tips and tricks that you want to throw out there uh, on this on this show? <laughs> well, um, you know, the other day when we went to Hag Lake, I much rather would have preferred to have gone to Willamette River. We decided not to do that because we didn't want to fight the crowds that we had heard were at the limited number of boat ramps that are, are open at that at that time or at this time, in fact. And so we decided to go to Hag Lake. Uh, after all, we've been trying to figure it out better in the, in the uh, early season. We pretty much have it nailed down in late spring, but we're trying to learn more about the intricacies of Hague Lake in the early spring and colder water. Um, so, but it's tough, and it has been tough. But um, if we had gone to the river, uh, which I know much better, I fish the river uh, predominantly as opposed to uh, lakes and reservoirs, um, let me just run off some of the types of cover and structure that I would try to fish if I were on the river. I would look into fishing deep holes, underwater humps, neck downs, dunes, outside creek channel bends, inside creek channel bends, brush piles, rock piles, rock reefs, rocky points, rocky shoals, rocky shelves, overhang, Boathouses, docks, launch ramps, river, creek inlets, spring flats, islands, stick-ups, gravel, clay, mud, piers, dolphins, trees, wood walls, concrete walls, irrigation pipes, boulders, scattered timber, points, ledges, cliffs, bluffs, grass, weed edges, stumps, saddles, riprap, laydowns, roadbeds, wing dams, current breaks, Bridge abutments, eddies, pushes, reeds, lily pads, and other vegetation. Did I miss any? <laughs> no. <laughs> you covered the entire river. Uh, if, if you can't find smallmouth in the Willamette River with that list, uh, you're, just, you're just not fishing. Uh, the, every area there that you covered, uh, I only covered two areas. When I was down there last weekend, I covered the, some boathouses. And there is a drop-off that's near the boathouses that I was at where I went from 20 feet water to about 8 feet water. I fished that edge, and there were fish along that edge. Uh, so uh, they must have been waiting for bait to come to them. So certainly you, you covered the entire uh, the gamut of things that one would want to look for. That, that uh, list did, in fact, come from my journal. I, over the years, I've kept a journal, and I wrote down where I have caught fish and the types of uh, cover and structure that I've caught fish from, and I just put them all in one list, and I just read from that a few minutes ago. Uh, and, yeah, that does cover most of, most of uh, the opportunities that are going to be available to you on the river. 
And you read that list off pretty fast, but folks, if you want to back the recording up when you're listening to it and uh, copy down some of those areas, uh, they can be found, I would think, most of the entire river from the upper areas uh, starting in Salem all the way to the mouth of the river, all those areas can be uh, can be found uh, along the Willamette. Now, there's very limited access right now, as far as I know, at the time of this recording, there's only one boat ramp open, and it is very, very busy there. So um, your best bet, if you're going to fish the Willamette right now, would be to go in the afternoon uh, during the week would be your best time. I would concur with that. That's a good idea. Yeah, uh, we went uh, early morning, and uh, the parking lot, at the uh, one boat ramp was already full, and so we uh, we had to find alternative parking. You know, one of the things that I've always uh, thought to myself is fishing attitude. Now, maybe I take a little different attitude toward fishing than you do because there's times when I go out fishing and I'm not necessarily trying to catch fish. I'm necessarily getting away from uh, the stresses of work and life and that kind of thing. But you're typically going out to catch fish. How do you keep your attitude pointed in the right direction so that if fish aren't biting, you're lo- you continue looking? Well, uh, I learned a great deal from um, one of our other Oregon Bass and Fanfish Club members in the last podcast that you just put out for the club. Um, he goes by the name of Zip Decker. And... What he said was, you know, if I'm having a tough time, I know the other guys in the tournament are also having a tough time. That was a good point that he made there in terms of being able to keep your perspective uh, and, your, and, your, and your focus. Um, by golly, if you're having a tough time, so is the other guy. I like to uh, move. I like to try to find the fish. I think they're biting at any given time of day just in different areas. So I have a tendency to go from point A to point B, uh, and I keep on the move. Um, other guys have a philosophy as, hey, I have caught fish here before. I'm going to sit here until they start biting, and they'll fish one spot for a great deal of time. Um, and it works. It works for them. My method works for me. I think that uh, moving to find fish helps me keep an attitude that will uh, be more positive than if I were to sit and not catch anything for hours on end. Um, I just like to uh, think that, hey, you know, they're just not right here right now. I know they will be, but now they're not. But maybe there are another area that's similar to this upriver. I think I'll go try that. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And that's a an excellent point that you make. Now, I wanted to go back and cover something that you mentioned, and I and I didn't bring it up. You mentioned that, uh, that fishing the river versus fishing a lake, you preferred the river. And we're fortunate enough here living in the Portland metro area that we do have the Willamette River running right through downtown. And if we want to go out to the Columbia River, certainly we can do that. But I wanted to ask, why would you prefer the river over going to a lake? Well, I can read a river. I, first of all, like I have said earlier in this podcast, I have fished a river predominantly, much more so than lakes. I can read a river only probably just from an experience uh, standpoint, time on the water, much better than I can 
the water on a lake. Um, and of course, in my opinion, it's also easier to read water. I mean, you can detect current breaks, certainly, because there's constant current on the river. And that's not the case necessarily on a lake. Um, lakes have proposed to be uh, a tougher uh, puzzle for me, uh, especially the fact that Hague Lake is uh, a nondescript, hardly any cover, uh, deep, clear water, cold lake. It's, it's a tough one. Uh, we finally have figured out certain times of the year. We, we've got them nailed and dialed in. But uh, early spring is the toughest one for me, and I'm still trying to, to um, uh, of all the times that I have been to Hague Lake in the early spring over the years, and I'm talking over 25, 30 years, um, I have been into one excellent um, jerkbait bite. I have been into jerkbait bites on other occasions at Hague Lake, but not excellent. Uh, one time, I hit it just right, and I couldn't... <laughs> No matter uh, what I threw, I just couldn't go wrong. I couldn't do any wrong. I was catching uh, bass almost every cow. It was incredible. And it went on for about uh, 45 minutes. And then, of course, uh, as is with uh, the case uh, in any scenario like that, the bite drops off and the fish go away and, and it's over. But, boy, what fun is that? For 45 minutes, you're just constantly catching fish. Well, that's an excellent point. Now, the next thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that Generally speaking, we would have started fishing maybe early March uh, or mid-March for sure, and uh, tournaments would have started in the area March or so, so it would have been March and all of April now, and here we are already into May, and the fish really haven't had much pressure on them. And so with that said, maybe they're going to start to loosen up some of the uh, restrictions coming up maybe this month, maybe next month. What would be your advice for somebody who's going to go out on the river once uh, the restrictions are kind of lifted and we, we feel more safe around other people? Uh, what's your recommendation for going out there for fish that have not really been pressured this spring? Well, uh, uh, soft plastic, soft plastics on the bottom. They're going to be looking. Uh, um, um, if you are able to get out in May, if they don't lift the restrictions and it's later in the year, like in June, um, um, I w in May I would still be fishing uh, uh, 12 to 20 feet deep. Uh, in June I'd be fishing 12 feet and less because they will have moved up into the shallows. And I like to use soft plastics. Um, I'll use uh, weightless Senkos. I'll use uh, Texas-style creature baits. I'll use uh, split shot. I'll use Carolina rigs. Um, and I find them in all, all sorts of depths in, in May, but uh, predominantly shallow in June. Soft plastics. I don't move to the hard baits uh, as much uh, after early spring is over or uh, until fall when I break out my crankbaits more often. That's not to say that you can't catch fish on those baits uh, any other time of the year. Those are just my favorite times of the year for those kind of baits. But um, universally, and with the most um, versatile uh, results, uh, uh, um, universally uh, productive results, I would go with the soft plastics. Your creature baits, your worms, your craws, your tubes, your grubs. Uh, love using them during this time of year. 
Well, that has been some great advice throughout the uh, podcast. Rich, And I, I appreciate you coming on today and uh, kind of digging down with me and uh, giving, uh, giving some really, really good information. I hope that folks that listen to the podcast will uh, take some of your advice and go out and uh, try some bass fishing. And I'd like to thank you for, for stopping by. Any last words? Well, if you're going to go out fishing, remember to try and match the hats. And that doesn't mean just matching the size of the available forage, but the color, too. And by far, by far, the most uh, um, popular color that you could possibly use in a soft plastic is green pumpkin. By far. <laughs> it is sold worldwide so much more over any other color. It isn't funny. Um, Give the old green pumpkin a try. Well, again, thanks, Rich. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends about us, and we can be found on Spotify and on iTunes. For show ideas or feedback, if you'd like to get a hold of me, if you'd like to get a hold of Rich, please email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com, and I'll pass the email along to Rich if you have questions for him. And I'd like to thank everyone, and until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the backcast.